Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. This year at the chapel, we've been focusing on a theme called God is on the move. And what we've tried to remind ourselves of is that there, there's, a, there's a truth in all of life that, that God's at work. God is moving. And if, if you see people visiting the church and, and you're wondering how they got here, it's because God is on the move. And if you see people making positive, godly, uh, Christ-honoring choices and they're growing spiritually, it's because God is on the move. If, if, if you see that people who are unsaved come to faith in Christ through the ministry of this church, it's because God is on the move. God is moving in all these things and God is working in all these different ways. God is on the move. But we have to be honest with you and say that there are times when it sure doesn't look like God's on the move. In fact, if anything, God is kind of hidden or God is silent. And we wonder where in the world is God and how come he's not moving like we think he should or like Pastor Scott talks about or, or the Bible or, or different movies or novels or things like that or preachers and evangelists say that God is on the move. How come I don't see him moving in my life? How come I don't see him moving in our world? How come things look like they're staying the same instead of changing in a way that really is God honoring and positive and beneficial? What do we do when, when God looks like he's hidden, when God's silent? Can we trust a God who's silent? Can we depend on a God who sometimes is apparently absent, has checked out, and is not moving and working in our midst? And there's a passage of Scripture that's it's a wonderful passage of Scripture. It's a beloved passage of Scripture, but it's, it's downright strange. I'm talking about the book of Esther. And in this story, this history of, of this young Jewish girl who becomes the, Pers- the, the queen of Persia, and has tremendous influence with the most powerful man in the world, King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, as he's known in other translations of Scripture. The, how this all works is absolutely amazing. It's a thrilling story. You hear the story in Sunday school. You've, you've heard uh, movies have been made of it. It's easy to treat this as like some kind of romance novel, almost like a, a, a Christian Cinderella story. That's what it can come across like. And yet the thing that's so odd about the book of Esther, the story of Esther, is that God is never once mentioned in Esther. He's not named. He's not prayed to. He's not praised. He's not even referenced. You don't even hear anybody using him as a, as a cuss word or something like that. He's, he's not there at all in the book of Esther. And it's strange that such a book where God looks like he's hidden or God is absent or God is silent, why would that even be included in the Bible? And so really when we think about Esther, my experience as I've worked with Christians over the last 30 some years is I've noticed that some people treat Esther like it is sort of a Christian Cinderella story and it's romantic and exciting and you know the underdog gets lifted up and the Jews get rescued and it's all exciting it's a wonderful wonderful story that way but it's treated almost like a romance novel and then you've got other people people like Martin Luther the great reformer people like John Calvin a later reformer who was a very influential Christian they said you shouldn't preach the book of Esther you shouldn't even bother studying in fact we're not should be included in the Bible because it doesn't even talk about God. So you've got both extreme views. And then you have the view of the Jewish people who read the book of Esther in their synagogue services every uh, late winter, early, very early spring during the feast or the festival of Purim. You maybe have heard about that. And they read the book of Esther out loud and they treat it like a comedy. Comedy in a sense of not like somebody standing up and doing a lot of, you know, one-liners and stand-up and pratfalls and things like that. But, but a comedy in a sense of the story is moving in the direction of a great tragedy. And all of a sudden there's this tremendous U-turn, this great reversal of events and catastrophe is averted. And there's a rescue. There's a deliverance. And it's like, ah, the tension is building, it's building, it's building. Ah, there's release, there's rescue. Yay! 
And so people, when they, in the synagogues, when they're listening to the book of Esther, the story of Esther read, they'll cheer for Esther. They'll cheer for her uncle Mordecai. They'll cheer when all these wonderful things happen. They'll shout and they'll yell hooray and things like that. And then when the different evil characters are mentioned, people like King Ahasuerus, but especially King, uh, rather uh, his, his uh, uh, prime minister or chief official, a man by the name of Haman, who is an arch enemy of the Jewish people, an anti-God in every way, they boo and hiss and they have noisemakers, rattles that they'll shake. And it's almost like a celebration of the downfall of Haman and the exaltation of, of Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people. They view it as a, as a comedy. And you and I, in a very positive sense, should view the story of Esther as a comedy as well. We also should view it, and this is important, we should view it as history. It's something that God has given to us. And, and when you read the different Bible scholars, Jewish, Christian, They'll sit back and they'll say, the, the events of this story are so fantastic and so incredible and we're f having trouble finding some of the historical evidence of this. This must be a made-up story. It's actually a short novel, a novella. That's all this is. This isn't true. And so you have some people write it off that way, and I don't think you can do that. I think the fact that it's included in Scripture and there are things that are very historical about it, I think this is true history. This is something that actually happened. And it's something that you and I can learn from in the process because it actually happened. And I think what we can learn and why it's relevant for us to read the book of Esther today in the 21st century and why it's not just women listening to it, it's men listening to it and why we both as men and women as followers of Christ need to hear this story is just simply because we see that there's a God who's hidden but he heroically rescues his people. There's a God who's silent, yes, but he still saves his people. And his silence is not an indication that he doesn't care or that he's unable to help. No, his silence is that he's letting all these things work out and behind the scenes, he's pulling levers, he's pushing buttons, he's drawing in the strings. He's on the move even if you can't see him. Because though he's silent, he still saves his people. And there's something else that's very powerful about the book of Esther for you and I to remember. I think one of the reasons why this book resonates so strongly with the Jewish people is because this, is, this has been the pattern of their existence for centuries. That there have been great enemies who have sought to annihilate and destroy the Jewish people. And yet God, even in those moments when it looks like he's hidden or silent or absent or not caring, the truth is he is there and he is working. Yes, there was a final solution in the Third Reich in the 1930s and 40s when Nazi Germany sought to exterminate the Jews, but God was still working there. Yes, there are great enemies against the Jewish people today the Palestinian state in many ways, ISIS and other groups like that. Even in our own country, there are people like the Klan and others that hate the Jewish people and resist the Jewish people and fight against them. But God will always defend the Jews because they are his chosen people. And it's a reminder that just as Ahasuerus tried to destroy the Jews, or Haman did rather, and then there was a great reversal, and Babylon had tried to do the same, and Greece tried to do the same, and Rome tried to do the same, and during the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church and other groups tried to do the same, and even Protestant groups have tried to do the same. God has always come through to defend and protect and preserve the Jewish people. The great miracle about the Jews is that they exist when there were so many forces arrayed against them to destroy them. And why do they exist? Because there's a God, their God, though he may be hidden, he still heroically saves them. And though he may be silent, he still comes to their rescue and saves them. And it's a reminder for you and I, as followers of Jesus today, that God knows you, sees you, and is working in the world, though you may not see him. May you not, though you may not hear him, 
He is still at work in the world, and he will always come to the rescue of his children and preserve them for his honor and for his glory. Now, what Jessica Robison and I are hoping to do this morning, and yes, you did see her walk up onto the stage because she is helping to teach these next couple weeks, and I'm excited about this because I think if you're going to have a story from Scripture that features a, a dominant woman as a character, as the heroine, so to speak, of the story, although we've gone back and forth, and I always trip up and say Esther's the hero of the story, but she reminds me, Jesse does, that God's the hero of the story. So thank you, Jesse, for reminding me of that. But if you're going to have a main character, the chief protagonist of the story, be a woman, then certainly we should be hearing it from a woman's perspective as well. So, so uh, put on your seatbelts, put both hands on the wheel, hold on. We're going to have a good time here this morning as well. One of the things that we want to do today as we take some time and explore chapters 1, 2, and 3 is we want to just show you that really the, the narrator of this story in these first couple chapters, he's introducing the characters of the story. And so in chapter 1, you're going to meet this king, this king Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes I, as he's called. It's ancient Persia. It's about 480 B.C., 100 years after the people of Judah were carried off into exile. Some have returned and tried to restart building the temple, rebuilding the, the city of Jerusalem, repopulating the the country of Judah, but they're small and they're having a very fitful beginning. And many of the Jewish people have chosen to remain as part of the diaspora, to remain in exile, and they've become prosperous living in Persia, far away from their ancient homeland of Palestine. And they're living there and they're settled there and you're comfortable there, and God permitted that. They, everybody didn't have to come back to Palestine, back to the promised land. And so they're there, and they're prospering there. And so you've got Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, who's in, in charge of the greatest nation on earth at that time, the great superpower, a kingdom that is so large, it spreads from North Africa, where, where modern-day Sudan is, and Ethiopia, all the way to the east, to Pakistan and India today, western India. It's a huge swath of territory that he governs and controls. And he's constantly thinking about his great enemy to the west, the country of Greece. And King Ahasuerus, as a background to this story, embarks on several military expeditions to attack and conquer Greece. And he succeeds to a point but winds up getting defeated. And it's between a couple of these battles and these big uh, uh, failures of military expeditions that all the events of, of Queen Esther's life and her coming to the throne and, and the Jews being threatened but protected, all these events begin to take place and unfold in the middle of these military expeditions that were failures for King Ahasuerus as well. In chapter 1, we see him in, introduced. In chapter 2, Jessica is going to take a few minutes. You know what? You never say that about a preacher. So I never say a few minutes. But uh, you're going to take some time, whatever the Lord leads you to do, and uh, share about Mordecai, a Jewish man that's there in, in uh, the capital of, of Persia, and his young niece or cousin, uh, an orphan girl by the name of Esther, and the story of her life. And I'll come back and look at chapter 3 and introduce to you the arch-villain of the story, a man by the name of Haman. So take your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Esther, and we're on page 410, and I want to read segments from Esther chapter 1 and introduce King Ahasuerus to you, or King Xerxes, as he's known in the Greek form of his name. Now it says that in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus that reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. And he describes how he had all the officers and nobles there, and this feast lasted six months 
180 days. It was basically a huge drinking party. The Persians were known as being people that just, uh, as at least the leaders, who, who felt like wine was great. And you'll notice from Ahasuerus' life, there are two things that he really cares about. He cares about his wine and he cares about his women. And this is what he's all about and what he's concerned about in every way. And so Ahasuerus is showing off the glory, the wealth, the power, the beauty of his kingdom for six months with these officers and nobles of the empire. And, and it says that in verse 7 that the drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So this is a huge drinking party. And as they're having this party, he says, there's one rule for this party. You can have as much as you want. There's no rules. Whatever every, anybody wants, that's what you can have. And so uh, the, the, the Persian leaders were not averse to making decisions while they were drunk. They would discuss great questions and policy while they were under the influence. And you would say, how in the world would they do that? That would be really dangerous. And yet that was something they thought was perfectly acceptable. And it says that at the same time in verse 8, Queen Vashti, this is Ahasuerus' wife, also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. <clears throat> then it says on the seventh day, and this was actually a, a feast that took, after, took place after that eight-month festival, or rather six-month festival that had just been talked about. It says on the seventh day of this second little one-week-long feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, and then he names a whole bunch of the, the advisors and assistants and servants that are with him, to, he commands these seven men to bring his wife, Queen Vashti, before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. And so we're not exactly sure what what this means, some of the rabbis and Bible teachers have looked at this passage and they're thinking that what Ahasuerus wants to do is actually publicly embarrass his wife or humiliate her, make her wear a crown and maybe nothing else when she comes out or humiliate her in some other way. Whatever it was, Vashti takes offense to what her husband's doing. She senses that he's drunk. She senses that he's just showing off how great and popular and powerful he is, and he's treating his wife like she's just some trophy, just another object, part of the glitz and glamour of his kingdom. He's shown his, his royal gardens, his gold, his silver, his palace, his wealth, the abundance of food, and yes, look at my beautiful wife, the queen. And whatever it was, Vashti's not having any part of that. She stands up to her husband and refuses to come. In verse, verse 12 it says, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And then the king basically asks his advisors for help. In verse 15 he's, he, he doesn't know what to do. He's showing his weakness here, his incompetence, his ineptness for actually leading such an empire. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? And one of the men speaks up and says in verse 16, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the king's, the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. And these leaders are just imagining what's going to happen around the dinner table in every family throughout the Persian Empire when they find out that Queen Vashti said no to her husband and stood up and didn't obey him. Why, every single woman in the empire, every wife is going to stand up to her husband and say, no, we can't have that. We can't have that at all. This is terrible what she's done. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Sounds like a happy home. Contempt and wrath in plenty. 
If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti will never again come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree was made by the king, is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give that all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. See, if we get rid of Vashti and you put her in exile, so to speak, and you put her in her place for standing up to you, all the other women will get the signal that they need to be submissive to their husband or they could get in trouble too. And so this is, this is what they're concerned about. Now, I want to pause for a minute. This is one of the things that's absolutely ridiculously funny about this story. You've got Ahasuerus, who's the most powerful man in the world, leader, sole leader of the Persian Empire, this mighty superpower. And he's about to embark on a great military campaign to try to conquer the kingdom of Greece to the west. And you know what he's concerned about? My wife offended me. She wouldn't do what I asked. She made me look bad in front of my officials. What am I going to do? And this massive distraction on his part, it just shows that what he's concerned about is not victory and not preserving the empire and not doing what's right and not trying to fix his marriage. He treats his wife like an object, demands that she be thrown away. Because she wouldn't do what he asked her to do in his drunken state. It just shows you the kind of man that Ahasuerus was. Powerful and rich, yes. Self-indulgent, self-indulgent, yes. No question about that. A drunkard, absolutely. But is he a wise, strong leader? No. Is he weak? Yes. Does he constantly need other people to tell him what to do? Yes. What is he concerned about? The preservation of the kingdom? No. What is he concerned about? His own image. His wine. And his women. And so it says that as they make this decree, that the letters were sent out throughout all the royal provinces, all 127 of them. This would take months for couriers to race throughout the empire develop, delivering these decrees that command the wives to be submissive to their husbands and telling that Queen Vashti has been deposed. That every man be the master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the scene. This is the context where we see Mordecai and Esther living. This is what's happened. Their families long ago have been carried off into exile, and here they are in the capital, the heart of the Persian Empire, and this is the kind of king that they're living under. This is what they're having to endure, these kinds of mercurial type of decisions, up and then down. He's happy, he's sad, he's joyful, he's rejoicing in you, and then he's mad at you. He's so unstable. And if you think that this is a bit ridiculous, there are other historical records that talk that when Ahasuerus actually did go on that expedition, that military expedition to Greece, as his engineers were trying to build a pontoon bridge across this one waterway, a major storm came up and wrecked the bridges. You know what Ahasuerus did in reaction? He executed all the engineers. They didn't account for the storm. He killed all of them, hundreds of them. And he took a leather strap. This is the funny part. He took a leather, long leather strap, and he actually went down the river, and he started beating it. He whipped it 300 times because he was so angry that the storm had come and washed away his bridges. That's how crazy he was, how, how self-centered, how angry, how so insecure, how immature he was. And yet that's the kind of man that Mordecai and Esther are living under. Jesse's now going to come and introduce Esther and Mordecai to us. If you were listening to this 
being read in a synagogue, this is the part of the story where you'd start cheering. We're going to talk about the heroes now. And uh, we're going to talk about Esther and Mordecai, as Pastor Scott says. I want to start, I want to read you the beginning of chapter 2, um, the first few verses. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. This plan that is cooked up by his assistants um, is very specific. They're looking for a very specific kind of woman. She has to be beautiful, she has to be young, and she has to be a virgin. That means that most likely these girls that were taken were very young teenagers. Most um, women and girls in that time were betrothed before puberty and were married shortly after their teenage, shortly into their teenage years, probably 14 or 15 years old. So that's what we're, um, that's what they're gathering together. He also says it's the entire kingdom and all the provinces. So I want you to imagine the scope for just a moment. 127 provinces, and it says all, all of the young, beautiful virgins. That means that a lot of women were gathered and brought to this citadel. It was such a large undertaking that commissioners had to be established so that they could oversee it in each of these provinces. This is not just a few women brought to entertain a king. This is an entire generation of women, all the beautiful ones at least, that are selected to be brought to the king. Imagine how many of them left behind people, they, men they were boys they were betrothed to that they would marry one day. They lost a lot when they were taken. Uh, we don't know how many were taken, but we can certainly assume that there were more Jewish girls than just Esther. This is all the provinces that he controlled, so it would have been women of many different nationalities. This plan goes into effect, and of course this pleases the king, as we've heard, he's quite a guy. And uh, so now, in this next section, we're going to actually meet Mordecai and Esther. In verse 5, it says, There's a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. One of my favorite things about the book of Esther is it has some really interesting literary um, devices throughout. It's written in a really creative way. And one of the things it does is it gives us some foreshadowing. It gives us a little bit of information that may not seem important now, but is very important later. And this is one of them. You'll want to remember that Mordecai is the descendant of Kish and that he is a Benjamite. That becomes very important in our story in just a moment. As Pastor Scott says, his family was taken captive during the Babylonian captivity and when Persia took over Babylon and the Jews were allowed to return home, Mordecai was one who stayed. He stayed with his cousin Esther who had no parents and he was her guardian. He stayed in there, did not return to Jerusalem and looked after Esther. We know that Mordecai has some kind of position there. He is going to be sitting at the city gates. But other than that, we don't know a whole lot more about him at the beginning of our story. But the real interesting character is Esther. And I want to start by saying that we have to be careful how we view Esther. And this is one of the things, as I read the book, I think of so many things that I've heard over the years about Esther. And so I wanted to start out by telling you how we should not be viewing Esther. As Pastor Scott already mentioned, she's not the hero of the story. She's the main character. She's the one who, who uh, propels the story forward. But God is the hero of the story. So we shouldn't look at her as being the one who makes everything happen. God is the one who does that. She's also not a contestant in a beauty pageant or an episode of The Bachelor, which some people I've heard sermons compare it to. It's not quite as, as kind and as, uh, as uh, nice as that. It's a darker story. She is not a Disney princess. She's not a romantic heroine, and she's certainly, at least in the beginning of this story, not powerful. We'll see that any power she does have is at the whim of a very mad and crazy man who could take it away from her at any moment. The best way to look at her as we pick her up in this passage is that at this point, she's a victim. She's someone who's taken from her life and placed in a situation that would certainly not have been comfortable or pleasing for her. In verse um, eight, it says, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, 
And when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. She was given favor by God she was given a place of honor. She got an entourage and the best rooms in the harem. She was looked after by not only this um, Haggai character, but also by Mordecai, who looked out for her. She is passive at this point, but she is obedient. She hides her Jewish heritage as he's asked her as a way to protect herself. She has a lot to be worried about. What's uh, about to happen in this story is not a romantic story at all. There's a selection process that goes on. These women are going to have a night with the king, and they're going to have one night to impress him, and if they do, they become the queen. It's a very tawdry story. This is a young girl placed in a situation that she's probably not prepared for. The Bible says um, in verse 12, it says, When the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, Six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women. Now, even though we already know this king's quite a guy, that verse right there tells you a lot more about him. He chose the most beautiful women in the kingdom, and they need 12 months to become acceptable to him. 12 months to become beautiful enough for him. I'd like to just speak to the women in the group a second. Don't think for a minute that living up to a standard of unrealistic beauty came in with cosmopolitan and celebrity culture. We've been fighting that battle for thousands of years, and we're not going to win it if we haven't won it now. So we can probably just step off of that, that game and not play it anymore. This king had unrealistic expectations of what he wanted, and he knew he could have anything he wanted. And so these women were put through 12 months of treatments to become beautiful enough. The most beautiful women in the world weren't good enough for him. And so they went through this process. She was presented to the king with whatever she wanted to wear, whatever jewelry she wanted. She could choose herself. She was sent to the king in the evening. She was collected in the morning. And after that, she was sent to a different place. She didn't go back to the harem she was at before. She went to a new harem where all of the women were sent after they'd seen the king. They were sent there used and forgotten. They would not be called back to the king again unless he remembered them by name. And with what we know of this king, how well do you think he paid attention to names? We cannot overstate what these young girls lost. They were torn from their families forever. They would never have a husband or children. They had nothing to do afterward, no purpose in life. Possible death if a new king came along. They often killed the old harem off. And as I said, used and forgotten. This is not a romantic story. And Esther, at this point, is a victim. When I read this story, I wonder, why would God allow this? Why would God allow his people to be treated in such a way? These young girls whose whole lives were ahead of them. I think, I think that we ask that question, too. Why would God allow something so horrible? Why would God allow the things he's allowed in our own lives or the lives of people we love? Why would God allow our issues, our grief, our pain, our loss? Why would he allow these situations that become dehumanizing? Why would God allow these things in our lives? You know, as a, a lot of well people in the last year and a half as I've been fighting cancer have, have tried to reassure me with the idea that everything happens for a reason. And while on the surface that sounds great, I have to say I struggle with that a little bit. Because that seems to me as if God is sending me something so horrible. And I wonder if God is so powerful, couldn't he do it another way? Does he have to send me cancer to turn me into a different person? Does he have to, is that part of the plan? Is, why, is, why is God sending these things? Is everything happening for a reason? Then that makes out that God is, is, is causing so many things that, that I just don't understand. We know that God is mysterious. 
And I wrestled with this for months and months. Along the way, isn't any time when I wrestle with things like this, I try to tell myself, what do you know for sure? If there's something about God you don't understand, what, what is it that you do know, that you do feel you have a handle on? And that changes daily, basically. Um, but God has dictated a few laws that operate in the world that we live in today. And these are the things that I know to be true. I know that there is a power of sin in the world. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve um, fell and sin came into the world, there is a power at work in this earth that we, that we are forced into. We have this world that is broken and dying, and we have a sin nature we constantly fight against. And this is a power that God has ordained should have, have its ac access in the world because we brought it in, and we're living out the consequences day after day. But also, Satan has a, a limited amount of power in this world. We know this from the story of Job. When Job comes and asks, when Satan comes and asks God, hey, I want to send some things into Job's life, some difficult things, and see if he still loves you. And God allows Job to be tested, but he says, you can only go so far. There's only so much that you can do. And so the, Satan has a limited amount of power to work in and amongst the world in the ways that he sees fit. And these are always going to be for our detriment in the long run. And also, God has dictated that we get to choose. We get free will. That means that every person on this earth can choose to do good or choose to do evil. In this story, the king could choose to do evil. That was his free choice. And Esther could choose to do good, and Mordecai could choose to do good. That was their free choice. In Genesis, God knew that if he put the tree in the garden, that they were going to eat of it. He could have, he could have left the tree out. But he chose to give them that because he wanted their love, and love is not love unless it's given freely. And it has to be a choice. And so when we look at these things, the power of sin, the limited power that Satan has in the world, and the free will of man, we see that there's many things that go wrong in this world that don't make sense. There's many things that happen to us that are evil, that are wrong. So as I wrestle with these three things that I do know and the things that I don't know, my prayer has been that I would understand if everything happens for a reason, then, then where does that put God in the equation? And, and one day I was praying about this and, and really thinking about this, and I was reminded of something that happened to me about 20 years ago. And it was an incredibly vivid story. It just popped right into my mind. And it was a story of a friend of mine. She would come to my house and we'd work on craft projects. And one day she brought her niece with her, who was about five or six years old, and she was doing some little things, crafty things with us. And she went into another room, and I didn't hear her for a while, so I went to check on her, and I found her sitting on the floor with my trash can dumped out and all around her. She had trash piled up over here and trash across her, her skirt and trash on the other side. It was the whole trash can all dumped out on the ground. And she's rooting through it, and she doesn't see me. She doesn't realize I can see her, and she's rooting through this trash, and every once in a while she'll pick up something, and it might be a little piece of yarn that was left over from a project or a card that I had started making and wasn't happy with and thought I couldn't redeem it, so I threw it in the trash, or little scraps of paper that were too small to use. And she would pull them out, and she would say, oh, I can use this. I can do something with this. Oh, I know what to do with this. I can make something with this. And she would pull all these out, and she had a little pile to the side that she was pulling things out and sitting aside. And as that story came to my mind during that prayer, I could see God doing that with my life. I could see him looking at all the things that could come my way. And I could see him saying, I can use that one. I can use this one. I can make something of that. And those are the things that he lets through. I don't necessarily know that God, that everything happens for a reason, but I do know that God redeems everything that happens. That everything that comes our way is allowed by God because he can use it and because it is useful and because it will accomplish his plan. And there's the mystery. How can someone's free will and someone's poor choice turn out to be the very thing that God accomplished his will through? We don't know how that works. I don't think we ever will. I don't think even though sometimes we get glimpses of what God is up to, we'll never fully understand until we get to heaven. We don't have the capability to understand him, and if we did, we wouldn't need him. But what I do know for sure is that there are things that God allows into your life that are difficult, that are hard, that are heartbreaking, but he will redeem it because he redeems everything. He's going to do it in our story for Esther, and I promise you, he's going to do it for you too.
So now it's Esther's turn to go into the king. In verse 15, it says, When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her when Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So I read that passage um, in studying this. I, I saw the, that the king loved Vashti, and I thought, I don't think this king is capable of love. So I wanted to look up a little bit about what that means. <laughs> the word love in that passage is used a lot of different ways, but most likely um, what it means in this passage is that he took delight above all the others, that he found favor with her, that she was a favorite, not necessarily love as we might imagine love, but that he delighted in her and he thought she was better than all the others. So he chose her and she became queen. There's a great feast, and the, this, the book is full of feasts, um, a tax holiday, gifting, and, and a big celebration. And then after that, we have this weird little interlude that I want to go over before Pastor Scott finishes um, with chapter 3. This weird little story that takes place, and this is another issue, um, evidence of foreshadowing. This is something that means nothing to you right now, and in fact, it seems kind of shoehorned in, but it's something that is going to become of greater significance later in our story, so you'll want to remember it. I'm going to um, start in verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. There's two things I want you to point, out, to point out to you, and I want you to hold on to them, because next week they're going to take greater significance. First of all, Esther mentioned Mordecai's name. She mentioned that Mordecai was the one who told her of this. And when the pet people were hanged and it was investigated, Mordecai's name then went, and this is the second thing, recorded in a book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The king saw this, this was going on in front of him, and they placed this name, Mordecai's name, and his, his saving of the king in this special chronicle. And then that's the last we hear of that for a while. That's a little bit of foreshadowing that's going to become important later. So now we have both of our, our good guys on the playing field. We're gonna finish up the sermon today with one more bad guy. So as all these characters are being introduced, I think it's easy to come away and just say, God sure is mysterious why he allows all these things to happen. Why, why was Esther treated the way that she was? That just seems so mysterious. Why was Mordecai forgotten? That just seems so mysterious why God would allow that. Why does God allow leaders like Ahasuerus to sit on the throne in the first place? Why do you have a guy that's so inept and so weak and so selfish and so clueless about leading and doing what's right? Why do you have leader, why does God allow leaders like that? And it's embracing this mysterious aspect of God. And as we see him working through each of these characters that we begin to see what God is really like. In fact, I think in Esther's story, really what we have is God revealing himself through these different characters as being the opposite or being the, the full fulfillment of the good things that those characters are and the opposite of the bad characteristics of the different characters. And there's one more character, as Jesse mentioned, that we need to meet. All the pieces are out on the game board. The game is about to start. The plot is about to be developed. And we see this character in chapter 3, and he's a gentleman by the name of Haman. So in, Genesis, uh, in Ex Esther chapter 3, verse 1, it says, After these things, after the assassination plot had been revealed, after Esther had become queen, after Mordecai was recorded, his good deeds were recorded in the king's record, after all these things had taken place, it said that a king Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. 
And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded so concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage. The king's servants who were with the king's gate said to Mordecai, how come you don't do this? Why do you transgress the king's command? And they repeatedly asked him, how come you don't bow down? Apparently, Mordecai also was an official in King Ahasuerus' court. That's how he was able to hear about the assassination plot and report it so quickly to Esther, who could report it to the king. And so he's there, and there's this new leader now, this new mid-level manager, so to speak, by the name of Haman. And Mordecai is not willing to bow down and pay respect to him. There's a lot of questions as to why this is going on and why Mordecai, is he just proud? Is he just being stubborn? Or is something else working behind the scenes? And I would like to suggest that there's something more powerful going on behind the scenes than just some sort of tit for tat, some sort of just a, you're, you're, you're being rude to me, I'm going to be rude to you. I, I'm jealous of you, so I'm going to treat you this way. It's, it's something bigger than that. This is not playground arguments like in elementary school. When Mordecai was introduced in chapter 2, you remember that he was called by his name. He's called Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. That information about Mordecai is very, very important because it identifies him as a descendant of King Saul, the very first king of Israel who was of the tribe of Benjamin, who was the son of Kish. And so here's Mordecai, a descendant of King Saul. He's now been carried off into exile. He's living in Persia, and yet he remembers because the Jews were meticulous about remembering their family tree, their genealogical lines. They took great care in preserving and remembering that information. I've, I've gone to my mom and dad, and I've asked questions about different people and family photos, and they can name some of them, and they'll say, but I don't remember who that is. I, I don't remember where their grandparents came from. I don't remember those great-great-grandparents. I, I can't remember that. We should have written those things down. And as they're getting older and I'm getting older, I'm realizing that if I'm going to share any of this information with my kids, I need to take the time to make sure that I'm preserving it, that genealogical record. Mordecai understood that. He knew where he had come from. He understands that he is a descendant of King Saul, Israel's very first king. Now, Notice, though, at the beginning of chapter 3 that Haman is introduced, and he's called by a special name. He's not a Persian himself. He's one of the exiles that has been brought from another part of the kingdom, and he's been brought to Babylon, and he's working his way up the civil service ladder. He's also uh, become a very powerful, influential person in the kingdom, and he's known as an Agagite. And I know that that sounds like something Popeye would maybe say, but no, really what it is is that he, he is a descendant of the mortal enemy of King Saul. The descendant, the ancestor, excuse me, of Mordecai. When we read in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when King Saul becomes the king of Israel, he is given a command to lead Israel in a military expedition and fight against a group of people called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are led by a king by the name of Agag. And the Israelites are commanded, you must slaughter all the Amalekites. You must destroy them all, even their king. You must annihilate them all. And King Saul didn't do that. He didn't kill the king. He actually spared the king and kind of was making fun of the king and mocking the king and, and tormenting him in that way. And the prophet Samuel says, no, you've done wrong. And Samuel actually goes and kills King Agag. Haman is a descendant of those Amalekites. You must be thinking, now wait a minute. Are you telling me that nearly a thousand years later that Haman would be holding that big of a grudge? over what the Israelites did? And the answer is yes. <laughs> because this blood feud between the, Aga, the, the, the Amalekites and the Israelites, it does go back thousands of years. We read in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, that when the Israelites left Egypt and marched into the Promised Land after crossing the Red Sea, before they got to Mount Sinai to get to Ten Commandments, there was a nomadic tribe 
that attacked the Israelites. In fact, they didn't attack the main force of the Israelites. They actually attacked all the stragglers, all the families with large children, all the, the sick and the weak, all the people who were old and enfeebled, the people who were the stragglers as the Israelites were marching out of Egypt and marching into the promised land. These stragglers were the ones that were attacked and picked off by the Amalekites. And they went to war. The Israelites were commanded by God to go to war against them. And that's that famous episode where Moses is up on the hillside and he's got to keep his hands up in the air during the battle. And whenever he dropped his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And whenever he lifted his hands, Joshua and the people, the soldiers of Israel were winning. And so this is, this is part of the historical background, the attack of the Amalekites, the Israelites fighting back and doing all of that. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, just before the Israelites go into the promised land and take possession of it, God reminds them one more time through Moses that you have got to fight against these Amalekites your whole existence. You've got to destroy them because they will be a constant enemy against you. They hate you. They fight against you. They will try to destroy you. You've got to fight back against them. But some escaped. And Haman is a descendant of those that escaped. That helps us understand that why Mordecai is not willing to bow down to him. Because if he understands some of the historical genealogical background, you know, I'm an Agagite. You need to bow down to Haman the Agagite. And, and, and Mordecai is remembering his Jewish history and what the Amalekites, King Agag, did to the Israelites. He's remembering that. And so he says, no, I'm not going to bow down to you because you're our enemy. You tried to destroy us. And Haman, when he reacts to Mordecai not bowing down, he gets so mad, he doesn't want to just kill Mordecai, but he wants to kill all the Jews. He wants to destroy them all, eradicate them. This is the original final solution. He wants to destroy all the Jewish people. And so Haman goes to King Ahasuerus, because he now has this position of great influence with the king, and he just simply goes and he says... Um, I, I want to destroy these people. These people are your enemies, King Ahasuerus. They're not paying taxes. They live different lives. They have a different culture than the Persian culture. They're not loyal citizens. They're not doing these things. They're not trustworthy. In fact, they are your enemies. He takes some truth that there are people in the empire. He distorts it a little bit by saying they live differently than we do. And then he lies and says they're, they're betraying you and they're not loyal citizens when the fact is is Mordecai most certainly is a loyal citizen he just protected the king from an assassination plot and again King Ahasuerus shows his ineptitude and shows how weak and undiscerning he is because he agrees with Haman without asking any questions without well, wait a minute who are you talking about and are you sure that they're all against me Yes, there had been some Egyptians that had rebelled against Ahasuerus, and he had crushed that. There were some Babylonians who rebelled against Ahasuerus, and he had crushed that. Now he's thinking, now there are these Jewish people. He's going to crush them if they rebel against him too. So he's very concerned about the preservation of his throne and kingdom. But Haman talks the king, says, look, I'm even willing to give you 10,000 talents of silver. That's basically 300-plus tons of silver. That's almost an entire year's tax revenue for the Persian Empire. I'm willing to pay that. And apparently Mordecai is thinking, if we wipe out all these Jews and we seize all their property, we will get all this money and I'll be able to give it to the king. And he's trying to bribe the king that way. The king says, no, I don't even want the money. You, you can keep it. Haman is so... Can I say it this way? He is so bloodthirsty, so hell-bent, so driven, so full of hatred for the Jewish people that he wants to destroy them. And it says that when this whole conversation is over and the deed is done and the edict was signed, it says that letters were sent, this is verse 13, by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to kill, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews young and old, women and children, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And the copy of the document was issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. 
The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued at Susa in the citadel. What the Haman, the scheme that he concocts to annihilate the Jews is basically, we're going to tell all the people in these different towns and their, and their provinces, they need to attack the Jews. They need to rise up and form lynch mobs. We need to have these mass mobs that will go out, these thugs, and just go fight against the Jews and just kill them. And the Jews are not allowed to defend themselves and protect themselves in any way. These people have 11 months to get ready to wipe the Jews out. And you can imagine the fear and dread that has overwhelmed the Jewish people as these, these edicts were declared, as these commands were given throughout the empire. And you can imagine them being so distraught, but not only are they distraught, but the people of Susa, the people of the empire, are distraught themselves. Because look at the very last verse of the chapter. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The people of Susa are like the, the narrator. They're like the readers of this story. And, and, and that's how everybody should react. When we hear what Haman is plotting and scheming to do to destroy the Jewish people, when we see Ahasuerus being so weak and just giving into it without any kind of character and standing up and doing what is, what is right, not even investigating what's being alleged, the people are just shaking their heads and saying, I don't understand this. This is not right. And Haman goes out and makes sure that he gets Ahasuerus drunk so he doesn't even pay attention and think about and perhaps even not remember what they've just plotted and schemed to do. In all of this, where is God? Where is God and letting such a weak, foolish king rule. Where is God that an enemy would plot such a terrible scheme to destroy all the Jewish people? Where is God in forgetting, allowing a, a, a wise, apparently loyal Jewish man, allowing him to be forgotten? Where is God in letting him be forgotten? Where is God in letting Esther be treated the way that she was, picked, plucked from the prime of her youth, treated as an object of a man's desire, placed into the power of that kingdom. Where is God in all that? What is he doing in all of that? Well, this is what God is doing as we see the book of Esther unfold. We're seeing that God rules over all nations, even Persia, the superpower, just as he rules over our nation, just as he rules over Russia and China, Israel, India. He rules over all the nations of the, of the world. He's in charge, and he's in charge in Persia as well. Where is God when his children are forgotten? Well, he's remembering his children. God remembers Mordecai. He remembers what Mordecai did. He remembers his people and the fact that they're threatened. He remembers Esther and the fact that there she is in the harem, a young teenage girl ready to lose everything unless God comes to the rescue. God is remembering all these things. Not only is God remembering all these things, but he's also rescuing his children. And though Esther is shamed and she becomes impure, and even though it's questionable that this good Jewish girl sleeps with this Persian uncircumcised Gentile, even though she's married to him and it seems like something that she would refuse and object object to, yet she gives in to, she really doesn't have any choice to, God still redeems all of that. He still uses all that for his glory. And, and when, when it looks like that God is forgetting about his people and his promises, we see that he does ride in to the rescue and he defends them. He does get revenge on his enemies. He does put them in his place because he is the God, though he may be hidden, he does come. He does come to the rescue. He's the hero who comes and rescues his people. Though it looks like he's silent, he does come to save because that's what God does. He's that faithful God that you and I can trust in. Someone said it this way. I appreciated how this one preacher explained God's presence in the book of Esther. He said it's like, it's like a father coming up to his daughter's dollhouse. 
And he lifts the roof off the dollhouse and sets it aside and begins moving the different figures and pieces of play, toy furniture, dollhouse furniture and things and objects. And he's just doing all that and he's looking in and he's peering in and he sees it all. And then he puts the roof back on. Our God is in control of the entire universe. And though you don't see him, he sees you. And though you don't hear him, he hears you. And though you think he's not working and he doesn't care and he's not moving in my life, God is on the move. He is there. He is real. He is present. And he's working here in Esther's story. And he's working in your story as well. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this great opportunity that we have of being in your presence today and for, again, having the privilege of reading the story of Esther. And we cheer for her and Mordecai, their faithfulness and their willingness to, to take risks and, and be exposed to danger. But most of all, we want to cheer for you, that you're our God, who though you are behind the scenes and often silent or hidden, you're still working. You're still moving. You're still hearing and listening and seeing and saving. Thank you for all of this. I pray that, Lord, you would take the enemies who are opposed to, opposed to us, the enemies who are not just flesh and blood, but the principalities and powers. And, Lord, we look for the, forward to the day when they are finally dethroned and deposed and find, receive their final judgment. We're trusting you for that, Lord. We're waiting for that. We long for that. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to rest in you and know that you are the king who comes to the rescue of his people as they wait on you. Help us do that, Lord, and not give up. For we ask and pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And we say, amen.